Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Rob Turley, your host of Down the Rabbit Hole Podcast. I'm co-founder, co-CEO at White Rabbit Intel, and today I have a special guest named Jill Robbins. She's awesome, she's a killer, and uh, she is a master of the art of negotiation and procurement. Procurement is often something that has not been talked about between individuals within a company outside of the procurement office or the legal office. So I think it's going to be a pretty interesting way to approach this because we're going to talk about how befriending procurement and using them as an advantage is, is is a very strategic call. Also, never to piss them off, because if you piss off procurement, you're pretty much done. <laughs> it's true. But uh, Jill, please introduce yourself. That'd be great. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. I'm excited to, to be with you today. So Jill Robbins, um, I am the president of Business Fierce. I spent over 20 years in the corporate world um, managing um, procurement staff around the world um, on a fortune 100 500 level uh, we managed between one and three billion in spend um, during my tenure and last year i took an extended leave from the corporate world and i then um, founded business fierce where i am bridging the gap between sales and procurement um, as rob said procurement is not your enemy um, we're going to talk about how to make them your number one ally today. Exactly. And procurement is such an important part of most businesses that are Fortune 500 and above because they're going to be buying a lot of things in a massive bulk amount, uh, whether it's procuring software for their 20,000 salespeople or mm -hmm. if it's procuring just items that they need for manufacturing, for production, for anything else within the process. So it's such an important thing. And like you're saying, Salespeople should have knowledge behind procurement because if you want to sell somebody something and you don't have that know-how, that's going to cause issues because you cannot take the conversation far enough to actually drive value and to drive your level of expertise into the deal because they're going to want to know what is it going to cost at this you know exorbitant level. Uh, what is it going to? Uh, what type of a discount can I get? Or, or a bulk discount, not discounting the product, but how much is it going to cost me for 1.2 million units, something mm -hmm. like that. So um, a lot of that also ties into negotiation. Salespeople are not negotiators. By trade, they're usually not negotiators. And negotiation is so important because do you want to have a larger sale so that your commission increases? Well, you pretty much damn well should know how to negotiate then because the negotiation starts at the very first conversation. I don't care what anybody says. The negotiation is started the second they show interest and they show intent. That's yep. it right there. And it continues all the way through until they no longer do business with you again. Absolutely. I teach my clients every conversation is a negotiation. So you said salespeople aren't negotiators. Well, then you're giving away value and you actually are negotiating and procurement has smoked you out early. Yep. And what does that mean to start the negotiation in the beginning of, of any conversation? What does that mean to you? Yeah. So, you know, every single conversation, um, you know, we're talking about sales here, but, you know, you can take it into to real life. Um, if you're buying an appliance, if you're buying a car, if you're doing a home improvement project, um, you know, think about it that way. Practice makes perfect. Um, and I don't believe in perfect because it doesn't exist, but you will get better and better um, and improve. So, you know, don't forget, you know, everyday life, if you're buying new tires for your car, um, you can negotiate that. Do your homework. Do your research. Um, there are no better negotiators than procurement professionals. Um, they have honed this skill um, in every single conversation. They are using it to get information from you and information from your competitors. 
That's the truth. And anything can be negotiated. If you think you cannot negotiate, you can even negotiate at a department store. They say, oh, non-negotiable. That is not true. Anything and everything is negotiable. And that is a fact. It's just that it's sometimes harder than other kinds. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, my tagline for my business is you don't get what you don't ask for. Um, and, you know, it's the truth. My husband um, knows it all too well after 17 years together. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you don't ask for it, how do you know? And the worst thing someone could say to you is no. Yeah. Not the and end of the world. Okay. There's a better yes, usually. There usually is because people don't start with, you know, their ace in the deck on the table. They're going to start with something like a four. And then you got to move your way toward the ace, right? Uh, it's it's working them toward uh, being more uncomfortable, but both sides still have to win. That's the key to negotiation is that you can screw yourself mm -hmm. by trying to push too hard, but how far is too far? And what would they be comfortable with? You, people do have to understand that both sides have to win. Yep, I agree. Yep, and there are a lot of negotiation coaches out there, and I'll say this, Rob, um, and masters of negotiation that will tell you there is no win-win, that there is compromise and both mm -hmm. sides compromise, but if both sides feel good when the deal is signed and then it's implemented, and I know this is something that, that you say, Rob, but you know, getting a deal signed is the start of the relationship. So don't just check the box and move on to your, you know, next shiny object. You really need to ensure whether it's a good or a service that that client is happy and that they actually got what they bargained for within those contract terms. Yes, I agree. And salespeople often believe that, uh, oh yeah, no. Okay. They signed on the dotted line. My job's over. Mm -hmm. It's done. No, you need to be maintaining that relationship because the original POC and POC, and I, I mean, not proof of concept, uh, uh, the first point of contact. So right. the person of contact or point of contact, that person is so important throughout the deal. And the second it's signed, like you just mentioned as well, is that that's the beginning of the relationship. So before it was just rapport and it's building trust. The relationship has begun the second it becomes a legal obligation. Once that relationship begins, they need to be taken care of the entire time throughout the period that you're doing business with them. So following up and making sure that they're happy as a salesperson is important. Sure, you may have customer success people, you may have support people, you may have people who are going to be working through that, maybe an ops or a compliance manager, but you should be involved with that. If anything, just shoot the shit with them a little bit and make sure that everything's still good, everything's still working. And uh, large enterprises often make the mistake of removing that person from the deal because it gets passed to an account executive or an account manager, whoever else it may be, cutting them out of the process. The person that they wanted to do business with, when people buy, they're buying the ability to do business with you yes. as a salesperson. They want to do business with you because they're investing in you, not so much the product or the service. Yeah, I think it's both. And you, know, you, you make a very good point because there are some very large software companies that have this customer success person, and then they'll pass off, hey, we've got the deal signed and we'll pass it off to kind of the next group. And I think it's, you know, that's a massive mistake um, because you will then limit your ability to upsell um, because that person understood the business case up front and why they decided to go with you versus your competition. And that person doesn't have all of that history and that tribal knowledge. That's right. And uh, how they have to relearn why they're doing business with you. And yep. that's why I don't think it should be a customer success handoff. It should be a customer success introduction or an introduction <laughs> to success so they can get threaded into it. And then you can slowly start to pull out as you're introing them in. 
And then the upsells can happen really, really up, you know, short pit time frame up front where, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I actually want to take it further. I want to take it further. I want to take it further. Yeah, sure. All you have to do is make an addendum to the deal or whatever else. So mm-hmm. that's a, a very much a missed opportunity the majority of the time. And mm-hmm. keeping that salesperson threaded in, I mean, the reason they're a sales professional is because they know how to sell. Customer success people don't. They know how to keep people happy, not how to sell them. When it comes to the procurement process, mm-hmm. um, you always say that make procurement your best friend. Mm-hmm. That's what you should be doing. Why is it the most opportune thing to make them your best friend? Yeah, you know, procurement has always um, been very critical to organizations. And I think, you know, post COVID, um, on the enterprise level, CFOs, COOs, and CEOs are looking to procurement to be the gatekeeper. So if you historically have been working around procurement, going straight to you know your business, um, whether it's in IT, whether it's in R&D and, and marketing and sales, um, that, that's a big mistake um, because you could be really shortchanging yourself to long-term deals and upselling with a client because procurement is the one who is the gatekeeper who sees the opportunities that are coming through different lines of business and they are soliciting future bids and they're defining strategies around that category so if you are not a preferred supplier or a strategic supplier and you're just viewed as a commodity or leverage you could then potentially be cut out of future bidding opportunities. And they're looking they're looking at who to buy from next the entire time. It's all a strategy. It's not so much a relationship thing. So when they're cut out of that process, if they're if they if you've been going around them, they're not looking at you as a strategy. They're looking at you as a supplier and that's it. There's plenty of different decisions to make out there of who they can buy from, different negotiations, but if you can build a relationship with procurement and build that trust, they're not going to go with the next cheapest thing because they trust you and because you built a relationship with them. So when it comes to things that are commoditized, it's not always the price. It's the buyer's journey and the experience. Same thing as any other strategic sale, even when it's with commodities. So there's a lot of mistrust in the procurement world, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, just PPE in general. Sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, the shipment doesn't even come. There's a lot of scam artists in there. There's a lot of people trying to sell things, especially with COVID. Look at the N95 masks. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, yeah. people would pay $250 million for a shipment that's never going to come. And the person they tried to do business with disappeared off the face of the freaking planet. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, what I say too, you know, you have to have that trust. And in my mind, trust is table stakes. If you don't have that trust and you don't have integrity, you know, you can kiss your reputation goodbye because procurement people talk. There are communities. Um, and you know, word will get around very quickly, and you probably just signed your death certificate. Um, but you know, you've got to do your homework. You know, that's one thing that I share. If you're selling to enterprise clients, if they're publicly traded, listen to the earnings calls. Know what problems, what challenges, what opportunities are on the table. Don't just you know read the transcripts. Um, don't look at the press release. Listen to the inflection in the voices of the executives and the investors and the analysts that are asking questions, you will learn a lot and you will then become that trusted partner, as Rob just said, versus just another supplier or vendor um, on a list. And I mean, for example, look at even data procurement. Mm -hmm. Data procurement is a form of procurement. Sure, it, it cannot be measured. There's no specific amount, I guess you could say. And it's not something you can hold in your hand. It's not physical in any way. But data procurement is very real 
and the mm -hmm. quality of data varies big time. So look at a company like Zoom Info. What are their fears? What are their weaknesses? What are they? What do they need to do to make sure that they hold that same dominating factor that they do now? Um, it's so important to them, and they have something that they, that you call an S one. They wrote up their S one. That's all of their fears. That's all of their weaknesses. That's all of their strengths. It's it's everything that has to do with where they need to go in order to uh, keep their um, their market share squared away. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that should be read by any data procurement person, any big data provider, anybody, because that is insight into the whole thing because they're publicly traded. Why do you think there's an S1? Reading yeah. that is so important so you can understand their pain at an actual organizational level. And then you can tie your you know, good or service to those opportunities and differentiate yourself from a value proposition hey, I'm better here than my competition, not bashing them, but just articulating your value so that they understand, hey, they've really done their homework. They know, you know what we're facing. They understand my business. And like you said, you wanna work with someone you like, that you trust, and that understands how your business operates. That's right, relatability and relevance, timeliness and trust. Those yeah. are major factors. Also validation saying, yes, I see you, I hear you, and I understand. Yep. Because getting that level of understanding is not always that easy because you're really getting into the heads and the hearts and the minds of the people who are running this business. Yep, and making you know the life easier of procurement because you know procurement sees the line of sight across the entire value chain. When you're selling into silos and into departments, they don't have the same visibility that procurement does into the business needs, into the demands, and they can connect dots within an organization that oftentimes are not connected by any other function. Yes, I agree with you. And uh, that has to do with the ideology behind decoupling. So mm -hmm. when things become decoupled, it means that they are separated from one another. Uh, perfect example, I've talked about this in a previous podcast that I recorded, but uh, decoupling, one of the most famous things that's ever happened with that was iTunes. Yeah. Uh, in iTunes, what they did is that instead of having to buy the whole album, a lot of artists would release like a one-hit wonder. It was popular on the on the radio or whatever else it was. The thing that really gave them the value proposition of why consumers just just com completely just drove sales through iTunes and not any other source or CDs is because they could buy one song for ninety nine cents rather right. than the whole album. So that is that was an extremely strategic form of decoupling. But the problem with that is that it separates everything so much. And procurement people have such an innate skill to be able to look at everything from a holistic point of view. A business is just a network of cycles that function together, that work together, that mm -hmm. coexist. Um, and when one thing starts to uh, fail or is in pain, the rest of it feels it. But where is it coming from? Mm -hmm. Procurement can very easily see where this pain is being sourced from and how it affects everything else. And that is such a powerful angle on a conversation. So what would be a piece of advice when you are, um, I guess, addressing procurement for the first time? Let's say you're trying to sell to a company and mm -hmm. you meet the procurement officer or whoever it may be. It depends on you know their title. It's, it's irrelevant. It's either doing procurement or they're not. Uh, yeah. It's true. <laughs> So how would you approach somebody who's looking to do a mass procurement of, let's say, let's say a, um, an ingredient for a mass production of, uh, let's, let's say like Doritos or something like that. They need like a flavoring agent 
in order to make it possible because they found a cheaper way to create the nacho cheese flavor artificially. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, do your homework, understand, you know, who your competitors are, you know, in that space, it's probably not a secret, you know, who currently has the business. And if you've come up with this novel concept and innovative solution, you know, you've got to differentiate yourself to get time on that person's calendar and to then cultivate that relationship. And then, you know, most likely they're going to want to do a trial, you know, so they're going to want to do a proof of concept, make sure that it works. So you need to be willing to put some skin in the game and prove your value, you know, to that contact. Um, and then, you know, follow up is key, ensuring that the value is then delivered, you know, cultivating, you know, uh, contract that is beneficial to both parties is critical and you know eyes wide open i would say um because procurement is like i said before a lens into the organization ask open-ended questions you know ask what the strategy looks like what the timeline looks like um are you looking to to make a switch on any of your manufacturing lines um, and then kind of ease your way in that way with Rob's example. And one of the most important things uh, is reviewing with the customer. So mm -hmm. after that connection has been made, uh, Marcus Kauke taught me recon. So yeah. recon is so important. Uh, so what recon stands for is remember, evaluate, communicate, objectify, and then narrate. Mm -hmm. So it's understanding them, remembering what it is that they're doing, why they need it, uh, remembering to contact them and yep. everything else in between, evaluating who that person is. Yeah. So evaluating how is this going so far? What type of results have they gotten? Uh, what are they looking for? How are they trying to improve beyond this? What other type of value can I bring to the table? Uh, mm -hmm. Then we have communicate. So making sure that you are communicating constantly between them, but not over communicating, not under communicating, but making sure that there is a line that's getting dropped whenever it needs to be dropped or whenever mm -hmm. is the most convenient for both sides. Then objectify is to uh, it's pretty much to object to anything that they may have trouble with or uh, objectifying yourself or your own product or service that you're offering so that you can objectify what's going on from either direction to understand where would the objections be if there were a problem? How, how can we improve to keep there from being objections? Uh, then lastly is narrate. So writing down, literally documenting the story of them using it, number one, the marketing team can create content behind why do people buy from us? Why do people spend their money with us? And also so that you can narrate the whole thing so the rest of your organization can understand how you're working with them. And so you can understand the strategy behind why this uh, why this deal and why these transactions are happening so that you can best explain to the rest of your team, to their team, and continue to keep it moving forward to make sure that it the, the narration behind the deal is actually moving forward the way that we want it to. It's telling the story and it's leaving the history behind on exactly where it needs to be to continue to doing business. And then you would rinse and repeat that. Remember, evaluate, communicate, objectify, narrate. And it's key because you're one of thousands of suppliers that are pitching, that are knocking on their door, that are sending spam emails, that are leaving voicemails. And you know, if you truly want to stand out, you know, you've got to differentiate yourself and articulate the value and go above and beyond to, to break through that door. Right, and reiteration is so important. Uh, mm -hmm. Any good leader repeats his or herself. Mm -hmm. yep. Always, and I tell this to my employees all the time. 
They're like, you know, I, I'm like, yes, I know I've said this a million times and I'll say it a million times again, but guess what? You will never forget it. I know it's, oh, it's annoying. Oh, he's saying it again. It's the same damn thing over and over, you know, like that, except they will never, ever, ever, ever forget. For example, yep. people buy from people they like, trust, and can relate to. I've said it a million times. I'll say it a million times again. I've said it in almost every single podcast I've been on. Yeah. And it's so important to remember that because people are not buying your product or service. They have choices. Yeah. They're buying yeah. you. They are. And I'd say before you repeat yourself and before you sell, you've got to actively listen and ask open-ended questions when you are selling to procurement. Um, because if you just come in and sell, they'll just block you and you won't have a second opportunity. So you really need to understand and cultivate that relationship and what they're looking for before you turn on that hard sell. And also reiterating uh, in different ways. So repeating yourself is good and try to repeat yourself in a way that's different every time. So it's learning how to explain the same situation, the same process or the same anything else in a different way so that people can understand it differently. Everybody thinks differently. So if you can explain the same simple concept in 25 different ways, that puts you at an advantage because I will literally repeat myself to somebody that I'm selling to that's going to be spending millions of dollars mm -hmm. um, five different ways before it clicks. You just yeah. say the same thing over and over again, but in a different way, from a different approach, from a different angle, with a different set of outcomes of how you could see it based off of that approach. And that's going to mean a lot to them. Even if you're saying the same thing, if they can understand it three different ways, mm -hmm. that means they have a very firm grasp yeah. of what the concept is and what the value is going to be. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's also important that, you know, when you're selling to these large enterprises, you're playing by their rules on their court. So ask, you know, hey, are there specific rules of engagement that, you know, we need to follow here? Go to their supplier portal, look up if they have, you know, supplier business conduct principles or a code of conduct for suppliers so that you are not disqualified before you even have one foot in the door. Follow those guidelines. Yeah, that's something I didn't even know existed. Absolutely. And it's better, you know, to get in front of that so you understand it because if you're in the penalty box or you've had your hand slapped, um, people don't forget. Right, right. So the same thing with like lying in business. So it, anybody can forgive. That's the thing. Yeah, sure, you'll be forgiven, but they will never forget. Right. And the fact that they don't forget is going to follow you for the rest of your career mm -hmm. because you cannot take it back. Sure, they'll forgive you. Sure, they may continue doing business with you. Sure, everything like that. But that the level of trust that you had with them has now dropped, and that level of trust is no longer attainable anymore. You can get close, mm -hmm. but as soon as you break that level of trust, mm -hmm. they're never going to forget, and they're going to talk. Like you're saying, people talk in procurement. There's mm -hmm. only a handful of people who do what you do, really. Mm -hmm. There's only yeah. a handful. There's, there's a couple hundred of you guys. That's it. Um, I mean, I've got a friend, uh, her name's Natalie. She works in PPE and, um, she does things for like, you know, um, triple M things like that. Uh, and that is just such a tight knit group. Um, there's probably about 16 people who do anything in that specific market mm -hmm. ever. And I'm talking, you know, um, she was do selling, um, N95 masks. That's why I actually know about procurement is because of her, but, mm -hmm. um, she would be buying 1.2 billion masks at a time mm -hmm. then reselling them. Uh, so pretty much buying it from the manufacturer and then yeah. distributing them because they have them, they have the uh, warehouses, they have everything like that. So buy it at like 45 cents a piece, sell it at 425 a piece. I mean, the money is absolutely absurd, but the second you break that trust or you do not deliver on a shipment or mm -hmm. the amount of units that are within that shipment are, is not correct, 
Yep. You, like you are dead to you dead to everybody. Yep. They'll go to the next person who's knocking on the door. Because there's plenty of them. Yep. And there's plenty of hardcore them. Hardcore negotiation uh, for all of it, and that's from mm -hmm. buying from the manufacturer, and it's mm -hmm. from reselling the product as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what would you recommend? as the sharpest form, I guess not sharp, it depends on the situation, of course, but for negotiation, what's a good starting point for people? Because people really lack the knowledge behind negotiation. What's too far, uh, what's too little, and mm -hmm. how do I know if I'm stepping on toes? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of what we talked about is, you know, doing your homework. You've got to do that. Start with the end in mind, and what does a perfect deal look like for you? And then you need to predict what a perfect deal looks like for your buyer and list that you know on a terms and conditions basis on you know if it's a product all the product features if there are any add-ons if it's a software solution you know what are the upgrades are there any other modules that they want to add in and you know start there do your homework information is power in every negotiation you cannot argue with facts and data so use those to your advantage um, and then listen and ask open-ended questions to get answers um, that you can fill in the blanks there. And, you know, you can ask why five times, which is a Lean Six Sigma practice. If you're not getting, you know, an answer that you're looking for, you can use that tactic as well. Um, you've got to prepare. Um, you know, this is something Rob and I talked about. You will not be perfect the first time. Um, you, you know, practice in your personal life. Practice with, you know, people, your boss, with your subordinates. Um, and you can then apply that preparation and shoot holes through that and do role plays. Um, but you, I cannot uh, overemphasize this enough, you know, for, and I've seen, you know, different statistics on this, but for every hour of negotiation, they, they say three to four hours of preparation. Um, so if it's a, you know, hundred million dollar deal, um, a billion dollar deal, you do the math. How much do you think you need to prepare more than you probably ever have in your life? And, uh, I mean, that reminds me of a time that, uh, I recently, well, it was about a year ago. I bought a new car, but, um, car's pretty rare. So I had to fly to Atlanta to get one because, uh, it was a pre-owned and that's pretty much the only way you can get it. Cause it'll make 3000 of them a year. Okay. So it had what 3000 miles on the thing because his wife freaked out and then made him get a family car. So <laughs> my luck, but they weren't selling it and shipping it out to anyone. They had about 146 offers in a 24 hour period, but they don't ship the car. You had to yeah. come pick it up. So mm -hmm. I called and then the, they don't hold the car on the lot. They don't do that either. So what I did is that I said, I'll wire you $8,000 to your bank account right now. If you hold that damn car, mm -hmm. they held the car. So yeah. went down with that. And what I did is that uh, I took my loan and I picked up the car. So they screwed up the bank paperwork. I drove the car back to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I had it there. And then three months later, the bank called me and said, hey, they never got back to us or they never gave us what we needed, everything like that. Then they called me. They said, hey, uh, this car belongs to us. We're going to have to repo this. And I said, uh, repo what? Because I'm trying to make payments and I have no payments to make. And they, they were saying this, that, and the other thing. They had someone drive up from Atlanta, Georgia for me to re-sign a document that also got screwed up. So I didn't make a payment on this car for the first six months that I owned it and they couldn't repo it because I found a loophole in the law where it was illegal for them to do so. So based off of what I was going to pay for the car, I actually got 
a 30% discount on the car because I was going to keep the car without paying them. And the negotiation happened throughout that entire process where I wouldn't let them try to pull that stuff because most people wouldn't understand that that's, that's not how the law works. So instead of paying $65,000 for the car, I paid $38,000 for the car. Wow. That's how much it dropped down because they just needed to make their money back. Oh my gosh. That's so incredible. I held them on that. And I said, listen, if you repo this car, I'm suing you. Mm-hmm. They're like, you can't do that. I said, oh, I can't. And then I sent them a clause. <laughs> and they said, oh, oh, we're sorry. We'll we'll figure it out. And they got me a lower APR on the, um, on the loan too. Because I said, I'm not paying the same APR I was. Because you're the guy, you're the guys who screwed it up. And if I try to get my own, it's going to be higher because that's asking for a second loan. I'm not doing that. You're going to figure this out and it's going to be on your buck. Mm -hmm. It's going to be on your time. It's going to be on your buck. I've been complying with everything. I am just not allowing you to break the law. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the thing is that negotiation can be done in your normal life practices. That saved me nearly like $25,000. That's that's great. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, that's kind of the point though, is that know your playing field is my Mm -hmm. point with what you were saying before. Know all the data behind it. Do Mm -hmm. your research, do your homework. Yeah. And that data doesn't lie. Like you said, the data doesn't lie. So -hmm. it can be done anywhere and everywhere. But my point is like kind of pushing into this is uh, the more you know about them, the more you know about yourself, the -hmm. more you know about what can possibly happen and what buttons you can press, the better the outcome you're going to get because people will threaten you. People will try to talk you into things that aren't necessarily a regular process. And knowing how to navigate that really bumpy road is going to be so super important. Absolutely. And, you know, when you are negotiating and when you're selling to procurement, it you've got to seek to understand before being understood. Um, because as I said before, you are a number um, of thousands of suppliers within the category that, you know, typically is managed under one person's domain. Um, so, you know, be patient. I say this all the time um, because sales folks are not always um, patient naturally. Um, But when you are selling to procurement, you will get a bigger long-term impact and bang for your buck. If you are exercise patients, if you don't, you may lose, you know, that deal for the next five years to an incumbent or to another competitor. Yeah. They have this thing in sales though, is that the longer it takes to close the deal, the less chances you have for it closing. That is true in some cases, but in Mm -hmm. mass procurement, not so much. No. Uh, but when you're talking about selling something that's transactional or something that's a couple hundred bucks, couple thousand, couple tens of thousand, yeah, sure, because you may lose the the flame, right? It could start dimming. But when it comes to a hundred million dollar deal, they're mm-hmm. just trying to find the best possible way to do it. And procurement people versus like a CEO or a CFO is trying to get something that they need, or let's say a sales director for a, a smaller procurement. Uh, that's a different story where you want them to move on it quickly so that you can get the service or the product started. But when it comes to stuff like this, it's not about the speed. Absolutely. And why do you think that is? <laughs> um, well, you know, after 20 years in, in corporate procurement, um, it's a machine. Um, it, it's a big machine. And I would say they've become more agile in the last 18 months with COVID. Um, and, you know, with 
innovations and in technology. Um, but, you know, procurement, th that's one of the cars they use is, hey, you're on my timeline. You know, they've got a lot of stakeholders. They've got evaluation criteria, you know, depending on, you know, what's being sourced or what's being competitively bid. Um, and there is a process to that. Okay. And how would you define profitability too, where it's like, this is the best possible choice for your company to follow through with this deal because of X, Y, and Z. But um, how, do, how do you approach telling them this is going to benefit you the most? Yep. So, you know, you can talk about total cost of ownership. You can talk about return on investment, but the real value is total cost optimization. So by not doing this, you're going to miss out on X, Y, and Z. Or by doing this, you'll eliminate, you know, these five processes. So you've got to think about the big picture and how all of those dots connect because procurement is looking at commercial levers, process levers, and technical levers. So the commercial levers are around supplier management. You know, how do I consolidate my supply base? They're looking to bundle the work. They want to look at location optimization, you know, in the manufacturing plan example we talked about, demand management. So how do I cut back on the volume purchase? So if I'm buying something better and I don't have to buy as many, that's a good thing. They're looking to optimize processes and standardize and redesign whenever they can. Um, so if that ingredient in the, the Doritos um, is more efficient, um, it's not going to cost me as much, that would be a standardization or a redesign. And then make versus buy um, is another lever. So, you know, you got to think about all of those different levers that procurement is looking at to, to add value. Um, so it's not just one particular area and it depends on the category that's being sourced as well. I like how you mentioned FOMO. So fear of missing out, F-O-M-O. Yep. That's mm -hmm. such a big thing. And the fear of missing out is often stronger than the fear of loss or the risk. Risk is, is a very convoluted thing because people are willing to take risk. Risk is not usually the problem. Uh, it's, and I like how you mentioned it's the uh, cost of optimization. Mm -hmm. Could you define that a little bit more? Because I'm sure that a lot of people have never even heard that term before. Yeah. So total cost op optimization is if you build a business case, so work with procurement. So whatever your solution or your product is, um, what's the current acquisition cost, the maintenance, the ongoing you know, productivity impact of that? And then it's a from and it's a to state. So if we if you move to my solution or my product, hey, what what's the differentiation there? And is it more innovative? Is it a lower total carrying cost? So those are the attributes and you've got to be open-minded and help procurement build that business case or build it for them based on the information you've collected. Right. And that's giving them enough information to show the entire process that, that's going to be underway. Like yeah. how you said, it's, it's uh, cost reduction. That's mm -hmm. big. Uh, mm -hmm. Cost reduction is very big, but that's really only appealing to procurement or a higher level C-suite or a board, right? Or a group of investors. When you're talking to, to people lower in the company, if you're working your way up, though, the, the, the reduced cost is not always the most uh, powerful thing that you could talk about. It's about how much time and how much easier is my life going to get and how what's in it for me at a personal level, not at a corporate level. That's when you start getting into the board members and the procurement right. folks and you start getting into operations and you start getting into uh, the senior council. They care about that stuff. When yep. it comes to when it comes to um, the optimization process, is my life going to be easier? 
Do mm -hmm. I need to pay people to get this done? Um, what is this going to do for me? Is this going to get me a promotion? Is this going to help us grow as a business? But when they would, by helping us grow as a business, am I going to get paid more? Uh, <laughs> it's impossible. So yeah. it gets into more of the me, me, me type of a thing rather than the us and our. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I like using, um, you're going to get X num number of results or Y increase mm -hmm. or Z optimized process. Uh, cause that's important to the people that are not quite at that level. Mm -hmm. Um, and for example, with my business is that we talk, we talk about cutting cost of customer acquisition. We've mm -hmm. had cases where it's been up to 90%. Mm -hmm. That's insane. If you're speaking to a sales director, they don't see it that way. People don't realize in sales that the majority seven eighths of the cost is actually just the cost of labor. Mm -hmm. That's it. Most salespeople that they, I mean, the app, the actual statistic is a salesperson spends about, and this is market and industry agnostic. It's market wide. They spend about one hour in front of a real opportunity, not a sale, an opportunity a day out of the eight hours of the day that they're working. So seven eighths of the time you're throwing a stack of them, a stack of money in the form of a salary into an empty office chair mm -hmm. while the salesperson's just running around in a circle. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on. So there's a huge targeting issue is what that means. It's not because you need more leads. It's because the target is completely off. Seven eighths mm -hmm. of the time, the target's wrong. So yeah. you're just talking to all these people, wasting your time, prospecting folks that are, are a total waste. But that is reducing the cost of new customer acquisition. But you need to frame it in a way where it's going to appeal to a sales director or a VP of sales in the sense where it's not the cost. You're talking about we can automatically identify your opportunities before you speak to them. And we can automatically eliminate up to 90 90 to 95% of dead end prospects. So people who are a bad fit in minutes, tens of thousands of people in minutes. And right. that's the way to do it where it's, wow, I'm not going to miss out on these opportunities. I can now sell more. My team can perform at a higher level, but to procurement or to, in, uh, to operations of the senior council, you're going to say, we can reduce your cost, your cost of new customer acquisition by 90%. Yeah. And I would challenge it a little bit. So historically procurement was very cost focused, but going forward, it's more around value and supply continuity and, you know, having the risk mitigated to ensure that product availability is there. So COVID has turned that switch, I would say that they're looking at the big picture much more so. And so many salespeople, and I share this Rob, because you think procurement is measured and rewarded on how much they save. No. Not one person I know in global procurement or supply chain has ever had a bonus related to what they saved the company. It does not happen. So they're not getting a commission. They're not getting a bonus. Um, so take that out of your mind and you've got to now articulate what's the value. As Enhanced well. productivity pays bonuses. Right. Cost reduction does not because that's the expectation of the yep. job. Yep. How do I maximize margins? How do I grow sales? How do I make the manufacturing lines, you know, more productive so we can get more output? Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. And that's something that most people probably don't even know. Um, it's, it's like, for example, a salesperson, uh, their job is to sell. Yep. So do they get a thank you for selling? No, that's your job. <laughs> you get a thank you for creating a, an extremely valuable deal that resulted in a powerful relationship. Mm -hmm. It's the quality of the sell.
is what you get congratulated on. It's not for the fact or uh, by the fact that you are selling because that's your job description. Literally, if you're not selling, you're a terrible. So you're not a salesperson then at all. Right. So what is a salesperson doing beyond just selling that is going to get them rewarded? And that would be relationship building. That would be time spent in front of the customer. That would be shortening the sales cycle so that it's a faster close. That would be increasing the number of dollars or transactions that that, that uh, customer is spending. It's not about the one and done, let's sell it. And that's, the, that's us talking about full circle. Um, the deal starts and the relationship starts as soon as they sign the paper. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting them there. That's your job. If you can perform above and beyond, that mm -hmm. is what gets rewarded. Yes. And that's what will then earn you credibility long term. And then also sharing with other people in procurement and other companies, hey, they were kick ass. They went above and beyond. You know, they were able to sustain value. They were able to innovate. They were able to improve productivity all of those things that will get you more sales and case studies and white papers and customer testimonials are what procurement is looking for. They want to see how you've done it at other companies in a similar industry, and then they'll trust you more. So, you know, don't underestimate the power of what you have done at other clients. Yeah. What, what you've done for others. That's huge. And that's something that, uh, my company struggled with because we're industry agnostic, market agnostic. Our solution works for any industry as long as it's B2B. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the thing. Have you worked with someone like this before? No, we haven't, but we have proof that it works with anybody. So that's not enough. Until we've worked with someone like that, the larger players in the game are not interested because they need to see the outcome that they had. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like how you mentioned before the build versus buy, mm -hmm. or uh, you said it a different way. It was- uh, Make versus buy. Yeah, make versus buy. So uh, in the software world, it's build versus buy. So uh, that's I come from the software world. So because uh, build it or buy it. Um, when or what does that mean? And when is it applicable? Like what what actually makes people want to build versus buy or what pushes people to buy uh, instead of building? What are those what are those factors? What are the what would you say are like the top five factors behind that? Well, so, you know, the, the make versus buy, buy decision is underpinned with identifying what the ideal balance of insourcing, you know, a process or a software solution or a job versus outsourcing of that job, of that good or of that service. So the decisions are around, hey, can so is someone else able to do this better than I am? Is that their core business? And typically it's divided into core and non-core. So if it's a non-core activity or product, it would typically be outsourced. If someone else can do it better, faster, cheaper, then I can do it inside. Right, and I'd like to add to that too, is that, is it something that we will rely on as a business where it is a core attribute, like you're saying core? Is it something where if it were to be outsourced that that company is pulling the strings? Yeah. where your business is not possible unless you're working with them. Nobody yeah. wants to become reliant on another business because that puts you into a stranglehold. They yeah. can increase cost. They can, and what, what happens if their company bankrupts, if something goes wrong, if there's a huge PR nightmare and you need to switch or swap or whatever needs to happen. If it's something that your company cannot exist without, it's probably not going to be outsourced. And it's funny you say that though, Rob, because something that everyone can relate to is call centers. 
companies outsourced call centers all the time. It doesn't matter if it's your credit card. It doesn't matter if it's Apple. It doesn't matter if it's your, you know, health benefits and your insurance. Every damn call center is outsourced. And it doesn't matter if it's in North America or in Asia, um, they're outsourced all over the world. But you know, that's something that people should think about. Hey, what's my experience? If if you're selling, you know, call center solutions or call center software, how are you going to differentiate yourself and apply your personal experience and what you've had there? Yeah, that and BPO. Oh yeah, BPO is everywhere, right? Um, and it's, you know, how do you skin the cat? You know, what's the best solution? Um, and sometimes it can be too good to be true. And that's what companies have realized because you can sacrifice customer satisfaction by doing so. Yeah, sacrificing customer satisfaction is a dangerous play too. I mean, uh, historically, PayPal became who they were because their customer satisfaction was total garbage. They didn't listen to their customers. They didn't care. They just kept pushing the product because they were the only choice on the market. They had no competition. So they completely just strung up um, uh, you know, customer satisfaction to die hanging on the, you know, the clothing line and they didn't care. They were just trying to build it, build it, build it, just convert more, convert more, convert more. So giant churn rate and everything, but they had that advantage of not having any competitors. So they didn't give a shit about it until mm -hmm. they had to give a shit about mm -hmm. it. Now PayPal has incredible customer service, but they totally sacrificed that to get where they are now. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend doing that to anybody unless it's truly something that, that just, you know, the world cannot live without and it's the only choice at the moment. But even still, I think that was a very wrong approach in my personal opinion, because mm -hmm. customer satisfaction dictates precisely how much money you're going to make. It makes it expected revenue. It doesn't make it revenue. So how long are they going to do business? What's the longevity? Longevity creates certainty. Certainty allows you to borrow from banks. It allows you to get investment. It causes your stock price to increase. And it makes it so your your employees are able to feel comfortable and stable within their job. So that's something I wouldn't recommend, but that's perfect example of sacrificing something that is a core attribute of a business. Did you know that? I did not know that about PayPal, no. <laughs> oh yeah, their customer service was atrocious. They didn't care. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, they had a lot of security breaches too. Yeah, they did. It's before we came out with uh, more effective things like blockchain blockchain yep. security. I mean, uh, I think what it, the most secure payment processor at this time, I think is Square. Okay. Mistake me if, uh, if it's a mistake then I, and I'm wrong. Uh, please, someone who's listening, correct mm -hmm. me. But as far as I know, I believe that Square is the most, um, the most secure payment processor in mm -hmm. existence. But um, yeah, no, listen, so we are running out of time here and I wish I can have this conversation with you for days. <laughs> so it is a lot of fun. Are there anything, is there anything that you want to mention from what we talked about that is something that people cannot live without knowing? Yeah. You know, I think just the top five and we've talked about this, but do your homework. Don't be lazy. Um, you know, invest in getting to know your customer. Um, because if that's your livelihood and you really believe in what you do, you, you need to um, have options on the table and understand their business ask those open-ended questions, you know, use storytelling to articulate your value proposition. People remember stories and they remember data. Um, so use that to your advantage. Work with procurement, not around procurement. 
Um, and you know, it may slow you down, but it will get you more business in the long term and you will have trust with that company long term. And of course, be flexible and adaptable. Um, you know, know that your contract inside now, you know, I've worked with so many suppliers, Rob, over the years that have never read the damn contract. And if you, if I signed a multi-million dollar deal with you and you're expected to implement it and you own the success of this, but you don't know what the KPIs are in the contract, shame on you. Um, I, I won't continue doing business with you um, longer term. So, you know, those would be my key takeaways. And I have uh, my own little you know, acronym. It's the four S's. It's story, strategy, solutioning, and stake. Mm -hmm. So those are the four most important things, in my opinion, is stories, telling a story, the strategy, strategizing with them, which leads into solutioning. So taking the strategy and turning it into a solution step by step in a story and then the stake that it would create uh, mm -hmm. within their business. So yeah. the stake is going to dictate everything else. That's like the end result. The story mm -hmm. is going to drive everything. The strategy is told in the form of a story. And then the solution is told in the form of a story in comparison to the strategy. So mm -hmm. parallel to it. So those, yep. are, those are four super, super important things. And uh, storytelling skills is a huge um, uh, point of failure in sales. Uh, mm -hmm. Also strategizing. So thinking, critical thinking and mm -hmm. uh, solutioning is another serious issue where, um, I mean, most salespeople don't know how to solution. Yeah. Uh, I, I come from a bit of a background in solutions architecture. Yeah. So that is literally breaking down an entire giant <laughs> complicated beast into the tiniest pieces, creating a problem architecture. So mm -hmm. showing where all the problems are, highlighting where the major pain points are, the source of the issue, seeing how it all spreads as a disease across a company. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is that you build a solution architecture. So thread in the solution that you have to offer, the product or the service or whatever have you, um, and how that's going to help fix everything rather than putting a band-aid on it how is it going to affect everything else and creating a solution architecture literally a diagrammatic showing how this is going to affect everything else um and that will tell you the story of what the stake is going to be yep absolutely and you know what i mentioned and what you're mentioning it all applies when you're responding to rfps too um so you know the clients i work with you know i teach them to become procurement insiders you know how to stand out amongst their competition and you've got to apply all of these things because as we've said all along here every conversation is a negotiation if you put through a vanilla proposal it'll just get thrown in a pile you know you won't stand out amongst your competition um, yep. so be creative um you know be solution-minded be strategic and you know don't just follow a cookie cutter approach yeah because cookie cutter ain't gonna cut it that's nope. something i say all the time <laughs> that's Absolutely. great yeah, so Jill, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have you on here, and I want to have like 10 more conversations with you. So, right. <laughs> Sounds good. Yep, perfect. So I want to thank everybody today for listening to this. Um, it was absolutely insightful. I can't, I can't say how much I learned as well. So very exciting stuff. Uh, so I want to thank Jill again for being on the show. And um, yeah, uh, please follow us. Uh, we're on Podbean and pretty much every other streaming software that you could possibly imagine. Uh, this show was brought to you by White Rabbit Intel, uh, sales enablement, artificial intelligence, so that your sales and marketing teams can know more, win more, and close often. So why not get started now? Super, super strategic play. Trust me. Uh, anyway, uh, please use our hashtag if you're going to mention us, hashtag DTRH podcast and hashtag sales enablement. So appreciate you guys all being here and uh, we'll see you next week. 
If you enjoyed this episode, follow Down the Rabbit Hole Podcast for new episodes weekly on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and YouTube. If you'd like to apply to be featured on the podcast or recommend a featured guest, please feel free to email us at theteam at whiterabbitintel.com.